0: On Criminal Injustice, I've mentioned to you every time that I've got the greatest day job, teaching law school. So on this episode, we'll meet some of those law students. We'll hear what drew them to the law and what's on their minds. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire. And stop, let me ask you, how many times have you, listening to this podcast, heard me say something like you this? still grateful as heck to have that day job, Aspruv professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh no, working of at law. that day job at the University well, of Pittsburgh. Happily in that fabulous day job at yes, the University somehow of Pittsburgh employed school in of that law. excellent day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Yes friends, that day job teaching at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. It is the foundation of all the different things I do. My research on police misconduct and racial profiling and many other things, my service to my community here in Pittsburgh and elsewhere across the country, and all of the interviews and news pieces and everything else I've done here on the podcast. But here's the bottom line. This day job begins and ends with teaching. The incredible privilege to teach law students at a very high level has turned out to be the center of my very full and very fortunate professional life. Every year, teach, speak, mentor to bring along hundreds of young people who, often for very different reasons of their own, have decided to make the law their path in life. It has always been and continues to be the greatest privilege I have to craft an experience for them, to present it to them live in the classroom in real time, and to watch it unfold as both they and I participate in it together. For me, honestly, there is not a lot that beats that, and I can't imagine a better way to earn a living. And doing my job allows me to help form and educate the next generation of people who will serve clients with legal needs, who will defend constitutional rights, serve in elected bodies like school boards and state legislatures, even serve on the bench. And not to mention, these people will be the protectors of the rule of law. In short, for me, there aren't a lot of gigs better than this one. So this time we're going to bring you a little piece of that experience and this all came about in a very unique way. No I didn't record my class so you could listen though if you want that I could probably arrange it for you. I have something better. The heart of any class of any school is the faculty and the students and the relationship between them. You already have me, and you've heard some other faculty here, too. But today, we're going to hear from some students. Now, here's how this happened. At the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, there is a student-run organization that goes by the name Pitt Legal Income Sharing Foundation. It goes by the awkward acronym of PLISF, and it's a student-run 501c3 charitable organization that does community education around various justice themes. They also do volunteer work. But its main job is raising money, raising funds for law students who want to take summer jobs in the public interest that do not pay anything. Now, these jobs, it could be an internship in a legal service organization, an advocacy organization, uh, working for a prosecutor, a public defender's office. These are jobs that Plissif and its student members believe students should be able to take, and they should not have to step away from them by the fact that the jobs don't pay a salary. So Plissif raises money throughout the year in order to support as many law students in these unpaid summer jobs in the summer as they can. This past year, for example, Plissif raised $100,000, Enough to help support 18 law students in worthy, unpaid summer jobs, giving them great experience and serving the community here in Pittsburgh and elsewhere. Now, each year, the big fundraiser for Plissif is an auction. In February, Plissif does a combination live and silent auction for the entire community, not just other students, offering items donated by community-spirited businesses and others. For example, I can remember a few years back, uh, a travel agency donated a five-day hotel and airfare vacation to Miami for two as one of the big ticket items. And faculty are always asked to donate items for the auction, especially experiences. Students might enjoy with a faculty member, a dinner in the professor's house, a cooking lesson from the professor, a special hiking or outdoor experience that the professor enjoys. These experiences are always among the most sought-after items, and students bid on them. Now, in the past, I've always donated to deplissive, but I've usually donated a meal out with me and some number of students. Now, that's gotten difficult in the past two years, what with COVID, restaurants being closed, and so forth. But this year, one student, one of my own students, suggested something different. How about auctioning off a guest spot on Criminal Injustice? The winner or winners can be your guest and would be on the podcast. You'd interview the students like any other guest. Now, it took me a while, but eventually I thought, that is genius. This might raise a little money for a good cause and would also give listeners a chance to hear very directly why I so enjoy that gig I call my day job at the top of each and every show. So this is it. It's a special episode in which we hear from those students. Let me introduce our guests to you in alphabetical order. Jace Peterkin is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, and a first-year law student at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He is a first-year student Bar Association representative. He is a law student member of the National Bar Association and the Black Men Lawyers Association, and he is also a public speaker. He is passionate about reforming policies related to health care, education, and infrastructure. In his free time, he loves to cook, read, and hang out with his godchildren at the library when time permits, and we know these are busy folks. Jace, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
1: Thank you, Professor Harris, for having me today.
0: Gabrielle Pruitt, a 2L at Pitt Law, is from the city of Detroit. She goes by Gabby. She is passionate about creating opportunities for marginalized communities through criminal justice reform and youth mentorship and has worked to make this her reality in the classroom, in the debate round, and the professional world. Gabby ultimately hopes to run for Wayne County Prosecutor on a progressive platform that brings marginalized communities into the conversation. Gabby, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
2: Thank you so much, I'm excited to be here.
0: And Cameron Randall, she is a Pittsburgh native And a second-year student at Pitt Law, she hopes to work as a public defender after graduation and then transition into other avenues to give back to and uplift the community here in Pittsburgh that helped raise her. She considers herself a radical police and prison abolitionist and plans to dedicate her career to building better systems based in racial and economic justice. Cameron was the winning bidder of this guest opportunity, at the Plissif Auction, and so congratulations to her, and thank you for bringing Jace and Gabrielle. Cameron, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
3: It's great to be here, Professor Harris.
0: I'm so glad all three of you are here. Now let me start with the same question for all of you. What brought you to law school, and why the University of Pittsburgh Law School in particular? Cameron, why don't we start with you?
3: Sure. Like you mentioned, I am from Pittsburgh. The only time I ever left was to go to undergrad, which was up by Erie, if anybody's familiar. So not very far from home. So I came back to law school to find myself in a better position to help the city that I'm from, my hometown. And I chose to go to law school. Really, I made this decision when I was in high school, and it was after... um, my family experienced some police brutality, I'll say, and um, I just decided that I didn't want to have to see anyone else go through that, so I had to find a way that I could help the people around me.
0: So direct experience here in Pittsburgh leads you to law school here yep. in Pittsburgh. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Direct experience being something would always draw you in. Absolutely. Jace, what about you? Why law school and why here?
1: Uh, So why law school? I guess I can start with that. Um, I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and um, as I was growing up, I knew that at some point I would go to law school. I wasn't really sure what the journey would look like, but I just knew at some point it would lead me there. So I knew um, I wanted to have a different experience for law school. I went to the University of Baltimore for undergrad, and honestly, similar to Cameron, I kind of wanted to find myself a little bit more. Um, So I wanted to go to a different state, uh, different environment, different people. So I decided on uh, Pittsburgh because it wasn't too far from my family, but far enough to kind of just experience life for myself. Um, But going to law school for me means a lot of different things. One, it means being a resource for my family, uh, but it also means being a resource for the community, friends and people that I don't know. A lot of times people go through legal woes and situations and they don't really know how to navigate it. It can seem like a really intimidating and scary process. So I've always told myself that law school is bigger than me. Um, I'm just kind of like the vessel and gaining all the knowledge that I can to give back to the community.
0: Interesting. So again, a very personal connection to those uh, that mean something to you. Gabby, what about you? Why law school and why here?
2: I have wanted to be an attorney since I was nine years old. I wanted to argue with people. And just like as I progressed from nine to 24, learning about the system and having those experiences myself and having other people who look like me have similar experiences with police and with the criminal justice system, eventually led me to want to practice prosecution. What brought me to Pittsburgh Well, i never heard of Pitt Law until the day that I applied. I think a lot of what made me interested is the way that Pitt focuses on public interest law. I always knew that I wanted to be a government attorney. Mm -hmm. And so especially coming here and visiting and hearing so much about Plissif and the resources that we have on campus that support public interest students was one of the deciding factors.
0: Wow. So the whole reason we're here today... And as a Plissif fundraiser, brings Gabby here in the first place to Pittsburgh.
2: I guess I will also say I am a Plissif scholarship recipient. So Plissif has had a like really great impact on my life aside from being here today, but also just being able to follow my dreams.
0: Interesting. The circle goes round. So the the ways that we think about ourselves, uh, I think, are so interesting. You know, I, I know all of you. Uh, You've been in class with me. Two of you are in class with me now in our seminar on reimagining policing. Um, And yet, when I asked each of you for a few facts that you'd like me to think about for your introduction, I learned some new things. Uh, And I'd like to maybe uh, talk about that a little bit. Cameron, uh, when you uh, told me a little bit more about how you'd like to be introduced... Uh, I love this phrase that you use, giving back and uplifting the community that helped raise you. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what was that community? Uh, where do you feel that help? And what do you hope to give back?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I um, have a really big family. So anywhere I go in the city, I'll find somebody that I know. That's or a that great I'm- feeling. <laughs> Is it? it? Well,
0: maybe just two sides to it, sure.
3: But um, so I see a lot of like, even if there's someone that I don't know in the city, it feels like home and it feels like family. So um, with that, I want to be able to use the tools that I accrue for my education because I know that education is not as accessible to all people. So I want to be able to use the tools that I am able to collect um, because I am privileged to be a pit law. I'm privileged to have gone to um, a very good undergrad um, college. So I want to be able to bring the tools back to people who may not have as easy access to them. Um, and I think especially in Pittsburgh, I don't know if, um, I hear this a lot and I had never heard it as a Pittsburgh native, but like apparently Pittsburgh is marketed as like the most livable city for young people. And <laughs> they told not me so? that lie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not so in your opinion?
3: I think it's the most, it may be the most livable city for young white people, but it is not the place for young black people. I don't think. And, um, especially having lived here for the past 23 years of my life, I have seen the gentrification and the, the I'll say, cultural wipe, really, that has happened in neighborhoods like East Liberty or the Hill District. And it's kind of like disappointing. And I want to see my home that doesn't even really look like my home anymore
0: be built back up. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, a lot of people know Pittsburgh as the home of August Wilson, the great 20th century playwright with his uh, 10-cycle plays of the 20th century. And when you think that's a person whose work came out of the Hill District and places like that, and then you experience what you've just described, which is to feel that your cultural identity as a black person has been erased, I bet that has a certain feeling for you.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you mentioned August Wilson. And if you go to the Hill District, you can find his house where he um, grew up and lived, but around it is completely gentrified. And it's just like you want to highlight what you think, what you consider as exceptional black culture, but you are displacing the black people that live in this community.
0: Yeah. So, um, Gabby, what I learned about you uh, was uh, how important a certain activity is to you, debate. And this really caught my eye because uh, as everybody probably knows, uh, as we're recording this, actually, is the, the start of the process for the nomination to the Supreme Court of uh, uh, the, the new, newest, what well, a person will be the newest justice. And she was a high school debater. Now, what was the importance of debate to you then and now?
2: Wow. Um, debate. Definitely. Uh, she said this in the article, like debate has shaped her life forever. And I definitely think that debate has shaped my life forever. So I did debate in college. I knew the first week of college that I wanted to be on the debate team. Like I said, I I always love to argue, but I
0: didn't R- really re- knowing you in class. I, I wouldn't have guessed that.
2: <laughs> I didn't realize the ways that debate would shape me. Um, most notably, Being a black woman coming from an inner city and a low income family, I gained so many basic professionalism skills in the debate community that I didn't otherwise have how to dress, how to speak, uh, demeanor when you're addressing a judge, when you're addressing an opponent. And then and also my law, my legal career, learning how to research and argue, how to combine arguments, how to make a solid analysis. All these things that really can make you a strong attorney are skills that I got in the debate world while also being ingrained into this community of nerds and being able to. Let's hear it for the legal (laughs) nerds. I mean, nerds who were learning about basic policy and being able to learn from my perspective as a black woman, because there aren't a lot of black debaters. And so that gave me an opportunity to really take a very unique perspective on issues. And that, of course, is affecting the way that I hope to practice being able to take those different perspectives.
0: Yeah. So developing that skill of being able to see both sides, multiple positions, very, very important to a lawyer, right?
2: Yeah. And debate actually... And the type of debate I did, so I did Lincoln-Douglas-style debate, which is individual debate. We have one topic for the entire year, and then you're either affirmative or negative. But in the league, we switch sides. So in one debate... One year we were arguing for police misconduct, and one debate I'm saying it's bad, and then in another day, I'm another debate I'm saying that it's not that bad or it's not that serious of a problem. It's not something we need to be working on. So, you do really learn the intricacies of mm-hmm. every side of the argument, so you can be prepared to to answer them.
0: Yeah, the primary lawyer skill. Primary, Jace. Let me turn to you. Uh, the thing that stood out to me about uh, your your little bio of yourself was uh, how important it seems to you to belong and participate in civic life through organizations like the National Bar Association or through our Student Bar Association. Why
1: is that important to you? Um, So first I would start with the uh, National Bar Association. So even before coming into law school, I was very adamant about participating in different uh, organizations and different foundations just to kind of immerse myself in as much knowledge as I could. I, I figured, you know, these attorneys, especially black attorneys, whether male or female, they have already gone through all of this. So me coming into law school, I don't really know what to expect. I don't know what it's going to look like. So getting knowledge from them and, and learning about their experiences definitely helped to shape me and helped me to kind of get through my process throughout law school, even as I'm here now. Um, but also, I like to say, uh, I like to know a little bit about a lot of things. So I feel like talking to talking mm-hmm. to different people and kind of learning about What they've gone through, whether at Pitt or other law schools, um, helps me to just kind of gain as much knowledge as I can.
0: And so you get both the mentoring you need and then the knowledge that you'll need going forward from these experiences.
1: Absolutely. And I also think um, not only the mentoring part, because I still talk to a lot of the people. I'm active in all of the organizations, but I not only still get the mentoring from them, but also learn what not to do. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned in law school is that sometimes you get so much advice and so many things to do. Um, But sometimes people tell you what not to do and you need that. So you can kind of have a balance of both.
0: Absolutely. So you've all been in law school for a while now, Uh, Jace for almost a year and Cameron and Gabby for almost two. Um, I I, I guess I want to ask, has it met your expectations? Has it been different than you expected in some important way? Um, What do you think is better or worse? I mean, you can be as descriptive as you want. Who'd like that?
2: this is gabby um i would say the biggest thing is like law school is way more challenging than i thought it was i didn't necessarily know a lot about law school i didn't know a lot of mm-hmm. lawyers before law school but i thought it was just going to be as hard as normal college but actually i'll be getting dragged by my hair yeah
0: it's <laughs> a bit more yeah
2: um in terms of like the career connections that we have access to especially as at Pitt and networking opportunities I definitely would say, yes, law school has already set us up for solid legal careers if we continue to work towards them. But in terms of the workload and the way that you're challenged to develop as a person and as a student, I had no idea what I was getting myself
0: into. (laughs) It's so different, isn't it? Jace, Cameron, any thoughts?
3: This is Cameron, and I think kind of similarly to Gabby, but kind of maybe on the opposite side of the coin, I think law school... Isn't what I expected at all in the sense that I thought I would be learning more practical skills instead of like, ah. oh, this is um, tax law that you're never going to use, but you need it for this test that you're going to take at the end. Bar exams. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I I've always known that I wanted to do criminal law. So it seems kind of seems kind of like not practical or not productive for me to uh, spend time learning about tax law and especially not like, I feel like the first year classes were not like what I expected at all. And I guess you need like a foundation to start from, Mm -hmm. but I just wish that it would have been a little bit more focused. And I think now that I am in my, my second year and I am picking my own classes, I get that a little bit more, but there's not always a class for what I want to learn.
0: All right, right. These are always shortcomings. Uh, and, you know, law school is not as practical, say, as medical school. You know, by this, by your, I, I don't know if it's your second or your third year in medical school, you were in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're working. And so when you graduate, you've been treating patients under supervision, but you've been in clinical rotations for some time. I always wonder what it would be like, uh, you know, here I wake up in the emergency room, and I look up, and the doctor's looking down at me. The "Doctor says, I'm Doctor Smith, and you're my very first patient." <laughs> I mean, I'd get up there hobbling, whatever I was doing, run out, I mean, you know. And yet, we graduate a lot of people without a lot of practical experience. We do have clinics and things that generally come to the, in the third year, but it's a it's a shortcoming of legal education. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Um, let me let me ask a slightly different question. Um, You are all African-American adults and now law students. Um, Has that shaped the experience at law school, uh, whether at Pitt or just in law school generally? Jace, what do you think? Uh,
1: That's a great question. So one, uh, I think we know Cameron's favorite class is tax law. So that's (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to that next year. Um, But I will say this being in law school um, to kind of combine the last question and this question has taught me a lot about myself. I think that's the the biggest thing that a lot of people don't talk about in law school is not just the the subjects that you learn and the content that you learn and the people that you meet, but rather how you grow as a person. I think a lot of us, um, not only myself and my classmates, have learned a lot about how we show up in the world and uh, things that we have to process and stuff like that. So as a, a black man in law school, and it's myself, one, two, three, four, I think maybe four other black men in our class, in our one-hour class, um, it's an interesting experience, um, and I don't think I have ever been faced so much with the reality of being a black man, except in law school. Huh. Um, I think being very interesting. Yeah, being in law school, you get looked at in a different way, and and I think sometimes people don't say it, but it's you can just see it on their face. I would say you can see that they look at you as if you know you're not supposed to be there, you don't belong there. I don't really care, but I think it is something that you know, it affects you after a while. It, it, you know, being in a space, I think my property law class, I'm the only black man in the class. I think I'm the only black person in the class. And so sometimes, you you know, you second-guess asking questions because you're not sure how it'll sound. You're not sure if you're understanding the material right. And in reality, uh, outside of color, most of us aren't understanding the material, regardless of what we look like. It's just hard. You're, yeah. st- you're grappling with it. Absolutely, absolutely. So... um it, it has been an interesting experience being in law school as a black man and being exposed to different personalities, different people and, and how uh, people communicate with you.
0: Yeah. Cameron, I saw you shaking your head as Jace was talking.
3: Yeah, definitely. I have had that same experience where I've been in the classroom and I actually think it was property also. <laughs> um, and you want to ask a question, but then everybody else seems like they know what's going on and you're just like, I should know this, but it's just not the case for a lot of people, especially when you don't have the background that a lot of people, um, or a lot of our white peers have, like a lot of them have moms or dads or uncles or whoever who have been attorneys and have gone to law school and have prepped them and primed them to be here today. And a lot of us, um, I feel like are first generation students and have not even didn't, didn't know what to expect coming in. But, um, Another thing that I wanted to um, add as far as being a, my experience as a black woman in law school, um, I, a a big part of why I came to law school is like sharing what I know, which I mentioned, or like sharing what I'll learn. And I feel like I try to implement that in like a backwards reaching method. Like I want, if I have to work really hard to be where I am and where I'm going, I want the person coming behind me to not have it so hard. So it seems like I'm kind of doing extra work, but I think it's worth it. And I'm kind of, I'll, I'll characterize it as learning for two. Kind
0: uh-huh. of. So, yeah, I, I get it. It's kind of like pay it forward. Yeah. And uh. I like
1: that learning for two. I think uh, that's a, a, a great way to look at law school is not only are you learning for yourself, but you're learning for society because ultimately, regardless of what area we practice in, in law, We're helping somebody, whether it's a big corporation, whether it's you're a public defender, whether you're an advocate, you're always helping somebody. So I like that. Yeah. You
0: you know, I I try to get across to people, no clients, no lawyers. We don't exist in a vacuum. We're there to serve people. And it just depends on who you choose to serve. Gabby, do you have thoughts on this particular issue?
2: Uh, I think I would. I definitely would just emphasize what Cameron and Jace both said. Uh, Being a black person in this space and just to go back a little bit, I've I've been a black person in predominantly white spaces for a very long time. When I was on the debate circuit, I was the only black person on my team. My team was all female. We were the only women who debated. So wow, right?
0: Intersectionality, they call that, right? Right.
2: So being at Pitt is very different. Like Jay said, you can tell that what people are thinking. I work at the courthouse and. I'm pretty sure half of the security doesn't know I'm an intern because they still ask me if I know where I'm going in the mornings. And I'm just like, Yeah, the same place I'm always going.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: It definitely is challenging. Like Jay said, to you're you're constantly taking this in. And it doesn't matter if we've known this since we were eight years old, like having that experience in your face every day is just so frustrating on top of everything else that's going on in the world. And being a law student. The most illuminating thing for me has also been seeing like you really do have to work twice as hard. I have so much more experience than many of my classmates, but I probably wouldn't have gotten into such a distinguished law school if it wasn't for my experience. And yet I still have this experience when I walk into the law school, when I walk into the courthouse where people are like, are you a defendant?
0: Wow. Yes. <laughs> um. brings me back to a conversation I had very early in the run of the podcast. It may have been episode number four. Uh, My guest was a wonderful friend uh, named Melba Pearson, who at the time was uh, an assistant district attorney down in Miami-Dade. And uh, we were talking about implicit bias because she and I taught implicit bias uh, for a session in the Obama White House. And I asked her to tell me a little story if one came to her about how this operated in her world. and. She talked about how she was at her desk for court one morning um, in a regular day's session. And she had the prosecution's files in front of her. She was in a suit, pearls, the whole professional thing. And a defense attorney came up to her, handed her a document and says, please file this for me. And she said she knew in that minute that this defense attorney, who she didn't know personally, was mistaking her for the courtroom clerk. Because a black woman, even though she's in the right place to be the prosecutor and dressed like one, could not possibly be the person in charge there. And she said she very politely informed him of that. And he got real mad. Yeah, I
2: think, unfortunately, I'm sure we all could give you a similar story like this. If I even gave you an example of the law school, I mean, my first year we were completely online. I went to the law school four times, three of those four times. A black security officer told me I wasn't a student of the law school and I needed to leave. But we have to swipe into the law school building. So that speaks to the bias across racial lines as well. And that speaks to what Cameron said. We really are learning for two. We have to educate ourselves on how we can educate the society so that Other black students coming into law school don't feel so frustrated by these problems that they refuse to stay.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing overall is that, yes, the education is there. It's difficult. It's a lot of work. And then there's a whole other layer. You're all nodding your heads. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's I really I can't tell you how much I appreciate your candor in discussing those things. I think that's important for people to understand. Um, but what I'd like to do now is turn our conversation to sort of the subject of the podcast, which is, of course, criminal justice. Our name is Criminal Injustice. And so what I'd like to start with, I guess, on this uh, this segment is just to ask um, all of you. Uh, uh, Jace has had criminal law and Gabby and Cameron have both had criminal law and criminal procedure. And they're now in the Reimagining Policing class. Uh, what do you think each of you is the most important or pressing, uh, uh, urgent issue in criminal l- justice, the criminal legal system today, if you could pick one and I won't hold you to that. If you want to have two, who wants to go first?
3: I can take Cameron? it. Cameron. Um, yeah, this is Cameron. Um, I am going to take you up on that picking two offer. All right. Um, I, and I think I've talked about this with a lot of people. The two issues that I think are most plaguing to our criminal justice system are the recidivism rate and the the prison system, honestly. Um, as far as the prison system, I think the prison system is largely punitive. And let us I'll not even include, because I think it goes unspoken, that a lot of the people um, in prison are wrongly accused or um, have taken unfair plea bargains. But... Believe that for another time. Okay. Um, but uh, the prison system is supposed to be, in theory, reformatory, but it's not reformative. It's supposed to be reformative, and it's not. Um, there's no reason why someone coming out of the prison system should not be rehabilitated, quote unquote, to, um, and be ready to enter society as a productive member. There's nothing in the prison system that prepares people for re entry. There are people that spend. Ten, twenty years however however long, inside of prison walls and come out not even knowing what the internet is, depending on when they went in, not knowing what a phone, not not knowing what a cell phone is, not knowing how to function in society, and thats only sets people up to go back into prison mm-hmm. and I think it all goes back to the prison industrial complex, but um, that seems like a bigger
1: topic
0: yeah, yeah gabby jace
1: um, i'll go i'll go next, um, so I would say uh The biggest thing to me is prevention, Uh, and that's more so focused on our youth, because I think, uh, you know, we do focus on the prison system, but we also don't necessarily take into account the children um, that grow up in the prison system. So I try to be as mindful as I can be of what is happening, not only in Baltimore, because that's where I'm from, but also in Pittsburgh and things like that. And a lot of the situations that have been happening in Baltimore have been our youth, um, recently there was an article that came out that said 77% of high schoolers at a particular school were reading at a elementary school level and they're in high school. And to me, uh, that, it, it honestly took my breath away to think that I'm in a, such a, a privileged space right mm-hmm. now being in law school and being educated and things like that. And there are students that are what, maybe five, six, seven years younger than me that, Read at an elementary school level, and and I say that to say, um, I think there should be a lot more resources out there for students, a lot more resources for kids. So instead of seeing what they're seeing uh, in their community, uh, they should see more people doing things with themselves. So whether that's trade school, whether that is law school, whether that's undergrad, doing something that's more productive with their time mm-hmm. and, and allowing them to gain more skills, gain more resources so they can ultimately do what they want. So I I think I wish that there was more prevention uh, versus, you know, trying to help kids once they're in um, prison and and they're actually going through that process. I wish there was more prevention so that they don't go in the first place.
3: And I think something that's underlying what you're saying is, it starts way earlier than we think. Absolutely. If someone is still reading at an elementary school level, something happened in elementary school.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great point. And it, I, I notice how it hooks back into Jace's main interest. Gabby, what about you?
2: For I mean, I definitely think that Cameron and Jace raise important issues. For me, the two biggest problems are, one, the ingrained racism. And I'm sure all four of us sitting here can list off statistics about how the system was created in a racial way and it's been utilized in a racial way. And unfortunately, from my perspective, I feel like all the other problems that come from the criminal justice system are because of that. Uh, I also think that the lack of resources we have is a very serious problem. PDs and DAs alike, don't have the resources to adequately handle cases or consider them and what their issues are and really sit down and figure out who the victim is and who the defendant is and that all goes back to the fact that it's a racialized system that was never meant to consider some of these factors
1: yeah that's uh, i could go on all day <laughs> that's a great point I, I appreciate that and i think like you said that's kind of the the center of everything there's a root to all of it so uh, regardless of where we end up it always starts back somewhere so yeah
0: We'll take a break from this terrific conversation right here. You're listening to a special episode of Criminal Injustice with three of the students from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law here to tell you what the world is like for them. We'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. David Harris here for Criminal Injustice. We're back with our special episode. We've got three students from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. They're telling us about what that day job is like from their point of view. Our guests are Jace Peterkin and Gabby Pruitt and Cameron Randall, and they're all telling us what the law school experience is like. And when we left off, we were beginning to talk about the criminal justice system. Cameron, I noticed in your comments, you talked about being a radical police and prison abolitionist. And I think a, a lot of listeners will hear that. They'll say, oh my gosh, this is that defund the police. What this, what's this about? Tell us what you mean when you say that and why you think it's important.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, when I say uh radical police and prison abolitionist, I think it means exactly what you think it means. I think the systems are, I was about to say the systems are broken, but honestly, the systems are working exactly how they were intended to. Uh-huh. And I think because of that, we need to find new systems that work for all of our community because in theory, this whole country was built on diversity and welcoming different cultures and especially Pittsburgh, the melting pot of the United States, right? right. So I think... Our, our, if our systems cannot work for everyone here then we need new systems um and I think like I kind of men- like I mentioned earlier the um, prison system is severely broken it uh, we have the largest incarcerated population I think in the world and we're number
0: one and
3: it's ridiculous and it's disproportionately black men so that's right I don't know how uh uh not even just black men uh black people in the United States make up 13% of the population, but I don't even have the statistics on how much of the prison population they make
0: up. It's not 13%.
3: (laughs) But it's, if you've ever heard the NWA song that can sum up how I feel, (laughs) Um,
0: but
3: can you give them more like of an idea of what song you're talking about? Um, I don't think on, um, sure you can. This is a podcast.
0: (laughs) We we don't know nothing to the FCC.
3: (laughs) I just think, <laughs> okay, well, I mentioned earlier how I was personally affected by police brutality, and under that my it was my brother was killed by a Pittsburgh police, and ever since then it's been I can't stand the police, but um it's just it's it's debilitating living in a city where if you get pulled over, it could be the killer of your brother, and I don't know. How you fix that with small reforms like different funding or different training, you don't. You have to burn the whole thing down and try again.
0: Cameron, I just want to say before we go on, this is not something I knew before. and Me neither.
3: Um, thank you for sharing.
0: I appreciate you sharing that with us, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry.
3: Um, thank you. I think the city has moved past sorry's, and it's time for change.
0: Understood understood. Um, the, uh, the, the same question, I guess, prompts me to ask uh, Gabby about her ambition to be a prosecutor. So what does that mean to you, Gabby? Um, you've talked about being a progressive prosecutor, and we have done a number of shows here about Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, We had George Gascon, who was then the San Francisco DA and pretty progressive uh, back then before he became the L.A. DA very recently. And, uh, you know, now we're at the point where 20 percent of the American population lives in a city or jurisdiction which has a person who you could characterize as progressive for their prosecutor. What does that mean to you and what would you do if you were the prosecutor in Wayne County?
2: I have a few things. The first thing that I want to say is progressive prosecution looks different to everyone. And we've already seen that with the progressive prosecutors that exist. And before I say what progressive prosecution means to me, I would like to say that I agree with Cameron that small reforms aren't going to fix anything. And we do have to burn down the system. I want to run as a progressive prosecutor because I don't believe that abolition is close. And so because abolition is not close, what can we do in the meantime? Creating opportunities for marginalized communities to interact and engage with police and other um, prosecutorial systems, conversations, uh, food drives, clothing drives, those things that just normalize like that the system is actually there to support people of color and that teaches the criminal justice system actors, that that's what they're there for. They are there to help the communities that experience the most poverty and the most violence. I feel like we need to move away from this focus on mass incarceration and locking up every person we can and just prosecuting cases and start focusing on treating people. It's it's not about the numbers. It's not about who wins, which is a very unfortunate dynamic that we have right now for lawyers in the criminal justice system is just that who's going to be the most successful lawyer who's arguing their case the best. And I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with it. We have moved very, very far away from rehabilitation. Um, I was reading an article for a philosophy class that says that reform is not even considered the leading criminal justice theory anymore. Uh, Retribution is. But as Cameron was stating, like, What's the point of treating people for their ailment if they don't get treated? Like, what's the point of locking these people up and letting them back into society, worse people? I feel like, as I said before, the criminal justice system is racist, but it's not just the criminal justice system. It's the society. And so until we start dealing with the problems of the racism in society, until we start creating more jobs, creating better education for marginalized communities until we start dealing with these things and giving people of color more resources we're not going to be able to change the problem and so i think for me when i run for Wayne county prosecutor and i win
0: there we go
2: on, we're going to focus on not dealing with low level or minor drug crimes we're going to focus on important things and just redefining what crime is and how we treat crime. I think something really amazing that Krasner has done is
0: this is Larry Krasner in Philadelphia
2: is changing how he looks at probation and giving probationary reforms. I mean, I worked in probation for a year and probation can work, but they don't have the resources that work, which just goes back to a lack of resources and then finding a way for my office to engage with the community so that the community respects us more and we're on the ground and we know what's going on.
0: Yeah. So, so interesting here. I hear uh, the same kind of thing that Jace was saying about it can't just be the criminal legal system. It's earlier than that. It's broader than that. Uh, We have to think of all the systems and how they interlock. And then to connect with what Cameron said, um, She says, burn it down now. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to, and it ain't good. And you say, yes, but it's a ways off. So in the meantime, we've got to do something that's better. Cameron, can you see your way to where Gabby is?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And in my, in my, in, I'll start again. Absolutely. In my um, own pursuit of how I wanted to give back to my computer community, I grappled with um, Trying or figuring out how I could be a progressive pro- prosecutor or finding how I could help as a public defender. And I found my home at the public, or I found, yeah, I'll say I found my home and the public defender side because I just don't think that um, there's as much discretion on the prosecutor side that I think would allow me to implement the changes that I need to see. Um, and I think we need people like Gabby that are willing to. Um, infiltrate the systems, I'll say, mm-hmm. and try to fix them from the inside. But I think there there are people that are trying to do that now, but it's just so minimal that it's kind of... It's like it's not getting the, the end result. It's not getting there. So it's like you're trying to build a house with Legos. And
0: a real house, you mean. Yeah. Yeah, not a Lego <laughs> house. Yeah, one we could live in. Yeah, Gabby. I
2: definitely um, agree with Cam that... The system is working exactly how it was meant to work, and that's very true. I 100% agree with that. And so for me, how I decided that I wanted to go into prosecution is because the system is working how it was designed to work, and it has the actors that are supposed to keep it working that way. And so until we have people who look different and feel different and have different experiences really in charge the only thing that we can do is burn it down. And with that being so far off, that's how I came to prosecution. So I do think that there are people working. Larry Krasner is an amazing example. Uh, Kim Fox in In Chicago. Chicago. Mm -hmm. She's also an amazing example. But unfortunately, like if we just looked at race, there are 25 black prosecutors across the country and there are probably even less ADAs if we're being realistic. So that just speaks to, we do have to infiltrate the system because clearly like without us infiltrating the system, we haven't seen those changes yet. We just, we just got to figure something out.
3: And I think as I was sitting here listening to you, I thought more about my analogy, right? And I'm thinking it's probably more like trying to build a house out of ice cubes while somebody sits there with a blowtorch.
0: Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, even with the progress uh, in, in the sense that I mentioned with 20 percent of the population living in cities or towns or jurisdictions with progressive prosecutors, you're seeing right now an enormously powerful uh, counter move, backlash, whether it's L.A. or San Francisco. Um, uh, you're seeing the traditionalist forces push back against George Gascon, against Keza Budin in uh, San Francisco, trying to remove these people from office, against Kim Fox. Now, the hopeful thing is that the voters who elected Larry Krasner and Kim Fox uh, and, and their colleagues in the first place, when these people have reached the point of running for a second term, they've all been returned to office and often with, with the same or greater margins despite whatever troubles any elected official would have. Um, So the voters who put them in there who want something different do seem to be saying, no, this is what we wanted, despite all the loud voices out there. And they're going to, you know, uh, they're going to stay until that job uh, has something like uh, uh, come to some point where we can see what we want. You know, and and that that raises another uh, related question, I guess. You know, I'm sure all of you run into friends or family, people who are not lawyers Uh, And uh, everybody is thinking these days, wow, homicides are up. Uh, Murder is spiking. Crime is up. And it's actually not true that all crime is up, right? We know that it is true that homicides are up, gun violence is up, and that is not anything to look away from. But crime in general has continued to be uh, flat or down, But with homicides up, we've got a huge public interest in public safety again. This might be uh, thought of as as, uh, a core of what helped to elect Eric Adams, the mayor of New York. Uh, He's a former police captain. He's talked a lot about uh, reinstalling some of the old ways of policing. Um, I'd like you to just see if you can explain to people... Um, how you would talk to somebody in your family or among your close friends who is very concerned about that and really doesn't understand from your point of view what's at stake. Jace, do you want to
1: start? Sure. Uh, One, I I really enjoyed listening to both of you and how passionate you are about different areas within the criminal justice system. Um, For me, whenever I am talking to family members about homicides. First, they don't call it homicides. They don't really even know what that means. But now that I've taken uh, the best criminal law professor, not only at the university, not only at the (laughs) University of Pittsburgh School of Law, but at all law schools, Professor David Harris, uh, he not only educated me, you know, of course, just getting through the course, but just on like how society and the law come together. So whenever I am talking to family members, I honestly just explain to them what I know. And I, I explain to them, Try I try to explain it in layman's terms, what a homicide is, uh, kind of what the process is. When I see things on TV and they say, you know, the person um, had a mental illness or something like that, and they're surprised why uh, the sentencing went the way that it did, I can give them some background on the process and things like that. Um, but also, I... I think something that's really important, not only just in the criminal justice sector, but um, overall in wanting to reform things is the laws. And that's something that I'm really passionate about is focusing on how we can change the laws or create new laws, because right now the laws that we have just aren't working. And even like you guys had mentioned about um, people going into prison and things like that. And when they get out, you're just setting them up to be in the same space that they were in before they even got in into prison in the first place. So I think, Uh, The criminal justice system, like you guys said, it needs a lot of changing. There's a lot of laws that are out there that need to be reformed. There's a lot of things that people just don't want to talk about and they sweep it under the rug. Either one, because they don't feel comfortable talking about it or two, they don't care to. So uh, when it comes to family, though, I I try to educate them as much as I can on what I've experienced. Like I said, with Professor Harris's class and um, yeah,
0: well, this is this is a good point, I think to turn the tables and uh, I've asked uh, all of you to think about um, what you would like to ask me we used to run a feature on the podcast called ask Dave and people would call in questions or write in questions and I thought uh, let's let's bring that back a little bit Um, and I asked you to think about a couple of questions you'd like to throw at me and you can interview me for the next few minutes so who wants to go first
2: I'll start. So we were talking a little bit about your previous experience as a public defender, and we were wondering what about that experience led you to become a criminal procedure professor and do your podcast and just challenge the criminal justice system in other ways.
0: That's a that's a really good question. Um, I, when I thought about being a lawyer, and like many of you uh, have said, uh, I was first generation college graduate, first generation lawyer. I didn't really have a lot of models. I didn't have any, honestly. And so I didn't really know what lawyers did day to day very much uh, and what they aspired to do. With. Certainly, I knew nothing about the what you'd call the higher end of the profession, people in corporate law firms or something like that. I knew nothing about that. And I, I always thought that the thing, the most exciting prospect I could imagine was to be a criminal defense lawyer. And I'm sure I got that from television. Where else would I get it? Um... But I I thought, well, what could be better than that? You get to stand up for the Constitution and go to court, be in trial and help people who need help and things like that. Um, And so um, uh, I decided at some point in college that I really did want to go to law school. I could see more broadly what the profession was about by then. You know, I could see lawyers, you know, serving in all kinds of positions, having decision making roles across life and government and all kinds of things. Uh, and, and it was a good fit for the skills I had. I was not going to med school. <laughs> was not gonna be a chemical engineer. It didn't look like any of those were gonna pan out. Not that I wanted them all that much. Uh, and this, this, I thought, would, would be for me. Um, when I got to law school, uh, you know, and people started to ask each other, you know, what were your ambitions? What did you want to do? Um, I was alone. There was nobody else who was interested at all in criminal defense. It was, everybody was like, so what firm do you want to go to? Which firm is doing the most mergers and acquisition work? And then and I just thought, oh, hmm, well, huh, I guess I'll try that out, right? I'm susceptible to peer pressure as anybody else, I suppose. Um, and in a summer job or two, I went to law firms uh, and, uh, you know, I learned some things and had some interesting work. Um, and after law school, um, I uh went into a first a wonderful judicial clerkship with uh, judge walter stapleton who was then a u.s district court judge in the district of delaware and later became a third circuit judge and um then i went to a law firm because by that time i was uh, either married or about to get married my father-in-law to be had been a corporate lawyer basically his whole career he encouraged me you make good money you learn a lot it's great work it's challenging so i thought what the heck why not um, and I went to a law firm in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, because, uh, you know, my wife uh, had lined up graduate school there and they had some good law firms there. And it didn't take me long to figure out this was not for me. I mean, maybe we would need another podcast episode to explain that. Um, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, that's that's probably enough. And it wasn't just that I sort of felt like eh, it's not grabbing me. It was, I just can't stand this. It was not work. I liked it bored me uh, when it was not ultimately harassing me. And I really had to start thinking, what did I get into this for? And I remembered trial lawyer, criminal defense, uh, and I had a few experiences at that point being a guest lecturer in a class. And I thought, that might be interesting. And it just so happened, as I was, you know, getting really sick of that firm uh, a guy joined it, very nice guy, and his wife was in this program at Georgetown, which was postgraduate. You had to have a law degree already, uh, and you were a fellow. And what you did was for two years, for the first year, you uh, did your own criminal defense cases under tight supervision of the best lawyers around, uh, and you went to court, and you really learned the ropes in a very, very direct way. And in the second year, you taught the third-year law students. You took them to court in legal clinics. And I thought, wow, this could be something really interesting. Um, again, we would need a whole other podcast episode. Uh, but against all odds, and I really do mean that, uh, I, I was selected as one of the Prettyman Fellows. That's the name of the program, the Prettyman Fellowship. And that was the biggest professional event in my life, uh, up to that point and maybe since too. Uh, and it had me in court. It had me learning directly. It was everything I wanted. And, uh, it also told me that at some point you really like teaching. You like being in the classroom. You like explaining things to people. And so after that, um, you know, you realize at some point that there are different things you do at different points in your life. Um, I loved being a public defender. That's what I did after the fellowship. Uh, I was a public defender uh, in the state of Maryland, in Montgomery County, right outside of D.C. Tons of trial work, really good other lawyers to work with, an ethic in that office that we went to trial. If you didn't give us a plea offer that was better than, not the same as but better than, what we could get at trial, we went to trial. And so... I had a lot of trial experience. I represented a lot of clients. I did it in a client-centered way. That was how I learned to practice. And after a few years of that, that was a height of the crack thing. Uh, we, were, we worked very hard, and it began to tell on me, just personally. Uh, I don't mean I came home ranting and raving at my family members. I mean I, I, I couldn't let it go. Once I walked out the door, when I would see things that I know were wrong or if I'd have experiences or I see my client having those experiences, I had a hard time giving up on those things. And that's a good thing because you don't want to give up, but also you can't let it eat you. And so that's when I sort of started looking around. Maybe the teaching thing would be a good next step. And everybody's different in that respect. The teaching, when I finally did get to it, several years later, it took a while to hook on and find a place, has given me many of the same kinds of outlets. Teaching is has some similarities to doing trial work. You're standing on your feet. You're answering questions. You're in the moment. Um, but no judge is breathing down your neck. Um, and, um, you know, if I make a mistake in class, nobody goes to jail. There's that. Uh, but it gives you... An, Incredible freedom to explore intellectually and the things that were most important to me as a lawyer, the, the way that race influenced everything I saw in court with the police, everything. It was so obvious you could not miss it. That has been a mainstay of my life as a scholar and as an academic. And so I see the two is very, very related. I've been able, to, you know, as a, as a trial lawyer, you do one case at a time, you can help one person at a time. Ultimately, it's hard, to, you can't really remake people's lives. Often by the time they get to a public defender, things are in pretty bad shape. The best you can do is a good outcome in their case. Maybe get them into treatment for substance abuse, find them a job, put them in programs, but ultimately it's tough. What I have the luxury of doing in this position is talking to a lot of people, trying to influence the debate, uh, create new programs, you know, move ahead in, in sort of bigger ways, and I get the bonus of folks like you. Oh, we right? get the bonus of you. Yes, well, yes, truly. No, I mean that because I get to talk to you and then you go out and someday you're gonna be doing something and you'll think, oh yeah, now I understand that, or I remember that, and it'll come back and we'll be connected. Absolutely. Uh, Long answer to a short question. (laughs) Do you have another question?
3: Yeah, definitely. We were also wondering what your position is on the decriminalization of marijuana and the potential retroactivity of any laws.
0: Oh, this is another good one. And I hope you don't mind another long answer. Um, You know, for me, this question has has deep personal roots. Uh, I came up at a time when cannabis was illegal everywhere federal level, state level. And uh, the way it was explained to us when we were teens and kids was this stuff is dangerous. It's terrible. That's why it's illegal. It can uh, hurt you very badly and so forth. Uh, I don't suppose I'm telling anything uh, that anybody will care about much, uh, but uh, way back in the day, Uh, I would be lying if I had told you I had never tried it. Um, (laughs) And it did not take a lot of time for me to figure out there are a lot of lies going around about it. And this was my first encounter with something that was connected to the legal system where I'd say, wait a minute. You're saying what? Uh, I've been there and this is about as harmful as having a beer. Um, And uh, I happen to like it. So what's the what, what, what's your argument? And, well, it's illegal. Yeah, but why? And I, I, you know, go through this with different people or in my head, whatever. Um, and honestly, I never imagined that this hypocrisy uh, would ever end. Um, and it took many decades. But finally, um, wow, uh, you know, there was a referendum in California. We start, the the changes started with uh, cannabis as a medicinal substance, and we got, you know, a number of states uh, having medical marijuana, uh, as it was called, and then came a uh, referendum in California to legalize it for all purposes, and it was defeated. Uh, I was teaching then a seminar on criminal justice policy, and we did a deep study of it at that point. What would it be like? and why did it fail and so forth, but it didn't take long. I think it was just the next time I taught it or the one after that, that same course, that it passed in two states, Colorado and Washington, for the first time. Um, uh, And um, this was the beginning, I think, of a very big change that is still ongoing. Um, Those two states uh, worked very hard to try to get the The market right, you know, so you didn't still have a black market and things like that, even though some was legalized. Uh, The states, those two early states certainly benefited a lot from tax revenue. And that, that um, was enough to show other states, uh, you can't ignore this, right? You put 500 million bucks in front of a politician with a budget hole uh, that they have to fill, they're going to pay attention, they're going to pay attention, and as this has gone on and more states have gotten there, um, what you're beginning, what you began to see in the next few states—not Washington and Colorado—but the next few, what you began to see is that they were actively thinking about equity. Right? It, this took a while, but they started to think, "Gee, we ought to think about the people who got arrested and incarcerated and have records because of this as we legalize it." So. Uh, jurisdictions began having massive amnesties, wiping out convictions, and even in some states, putting in provisions that said people who'd been locked out of the market by criminal justice, convictions or whatever, should be part of the market going forward on the legal side. That's still an ongoing project, but it's really something to watch. What has to happen now, uh, there will inevitably be more states that uh, legalized it. I mean, we're sitting in Pennsylvania. It is bordered by two enormous states, New York and New Jersey, near its largest population center in which it's fully legal. There is no way that Pennsylvania uh, politicians will ignore the potential tax revenue that is now going to New Jersey. They just can't ignore it. they're, They're not disposed that way. But even more than that, the federal government has got to get out of the business of regulating cannabis. Uh, it, it, they want to patrol the borders for it. Fine. There's no excuse for them to be part of it. it. Should be a legitimate business. Now that doesn't mean it's all you know candy and gumdrops. Should excuse the expression for those who like edibles. What it <laughs> means is um, it should not be a criminal matter. State can handle it any number of ways, but making it a crime makes no sense at all. And I hope we'll be backing away from that. I told you. Short question, long answer. Um, I, you know, talk about being disposed to something. That's me. Um, so I want to give you each one more shot as we get ready to close up. Uh, in just a few seconds or a minute, if you wanted to make one other point, make one other takeaway for people listening, law school, life, the uh, the, the the criminal justice system,
1: what would it be? Jace, do you want to go first? <laughs> of course me. Um, One, I want to say thank you to Cameron first, because without Cameron, we wouldn't be here. So thank you, Cameron. Thank you, Gabby. Uh, She is our boss president. So thank you for being you. And of course, thank you, Professor Harris, for having this um, podcast in the first place, not only for allowing us to be here and for allowing us to speak, but for also educating people, because we have the privilege and the honor to be in in your classes, but other people don't. And and when you express yourself and, and you tell us different things, we are in your class when you tell us that But for people that aren't in your class And either didn't get into law school Or don't want to go to law school You educate them And I thank you for for having this platform To educate people and let them know What's happening in the world And to really just provoke people for thinking And, and allowing them to say Okay, well this topic bothers me Let me do a little bit more research And, and so forth So thank you for that um, And for all the listeners that are interested in law school um, It is worth it um, And if you... <laughs> barely but it's it's worth it (laughs) it's worth it um and if you are a black student please feel free to reach out to anybody at pit law balsa we're definitely here to support you um but just remember you can do it and for everybody else that's not in law school um just live life happily and just love freely thank you before we go to gabby balsa is the black law students association gabby
2: shameless plug balsa y'all um I kind of wanted to say the same thing as Jace. First of all, thank you all. Um, Some of the most amazing people I've met during my time in law school. This was a great time. But also if there are any students of color listening or, you know, a student of color who is interested in law school, I don't agree with Jace. It is not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean that, but there are resources. It is possible. There are scholarship opportunities. Again, I've, Got so many resources from Professor Harris just sitting underneath his voice being able to make meetings with him. And, I mean, he sent me resources just this morning that were not related to this interview. So, definitely don't be deterred. Don't feel afraid because of how you feel or your experiences as a black person. As we have made it very clear during this podcast, we need more people of color in law school.
0: Thank you, Kami. Cameron? Uh,
3: I think I am going to echo a lot of what was already said, but I think it's worth it. It's definitely hard. It's hard to go to law school, but it is worth it. And I am going to be a part of the 2% of uh, lawyers that are wh- black women. And ooh, ooh,
1: ooh, ooh. I hear it. All right.
3: I am hoping and praying that after me it'll be 5% and then 20 and then as much as high as it can go.
0: Pay it forward. Well, my guests on this episode were all members of the student body at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, where I have had the tremendous pleasure of teaching all of them. Jace Peterkin is a first-year student. Gabrielle Pruitt and Cameron Randall are second-year students at Pitt Law. They are here as part of a fundraiser for the Pitt Legal Income Sharing Foundation, which raises money to support law students in unpaid public interest jobs In the summer, we'll put a link up on our website to Plissif for anybody who's curious. And if anyone would like to make a donation, you can do it there. Thanks to all three of you for being a guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Thank Thank you, 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 Professor Harris. for
2: having us.
0: And that, my friends, was our special episode of Criminal Injustice wonderful students at that great day job I always talk about. You can hear all of our past episodes by going to our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you also find all of our news bonuses and features. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time.